I think I want to start by telling you what, I, how I want to end. So you'll have a sense of where I felt led to go with this. I'm only going to focus on the first line of the creed, we believe in one God. And because you know about me that I'm very passionate about the Gentile body of Christ being rightly related to the Jewish root for her own health and for uh, a, a, a truer knowledge of our Father, I could speak quite a bit about that regarding the Nicene Creed, but if you listened to the YouTube that Thomas sent out, you, you know some of what is troubling and problematic about the Nicene Creed from a Messianic Jewish point of view already. You know, you know that, that no Jewish bishops were present at Nicene, so it doesn't feel like an ecumenical council to Messianic Jews. You know that there was a decision made about Easter to remove it from Passover, so that it was not celebrated in conjunction with Passover any longer, but celebrated along the timeline of the pagan festival in Rome. And there were reasons for that that Constantine had. And the language you heard Amy say on that YouTube that was used in the council was very denigrating to the Jewish people. I could share some of that, but I'm, I'm not going to actually. I, I think Mark Kinzer has written a very good article on that, and some, sometime we could talk about it if it becomes relevant to talk about it. I'm actually gonna talk about uh, the piece of the Nicene Creed that the Messianic Jews or the Jewish world would find links Christianity with them at the deepest level. The piece of the creed that they, that they most find their own heart in is the first line, we believe in one God. And by way of introduction, yet a little further, if you know me again at all, you know that I am very passionate about the second coming of the Lord, and I take it seriously that we can have a serious calling to prepare for the second coming of the Lord with the gifts that we have been given. And so I begin by sharing something from Amy that came up in a conversation that Amy and I and Jolene were having two or three weeks ago. And our friend John Boyle had a dream, and the dream had in it pervasive mist between us on earth and heaven pervasive mist, cultural mist, that kept us from sensing this call to the second coming. And I was telling Jolene that the more I pray about that dream, the more I see it, and I sense its thickness, how it, how it, how it shrouds us. And Amy said, and this is kind of a quote, it's not just mist. It's like a relentless fog-making machine, <laughs> fueled by the fact that when Jesus comes again, he comes as a judge who will judge the world. And there are things on the earth that do not want to be judged badly. They do not want to be judged. So there's a mist, but it's a fog-making machine. And so part of what I want to talk about Part of where I'm going is the fact that, so I link the first line of the creed with a piece that comes later. We believe in one God. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. This speaks of the role of Jesus. 
But this is all part of God's grand story. There's something on the earth that is not good for us, and God knows it, and he is going to, in the end of the story, reveal it and judge it and free us from it. I would could call that idolatry. And that's what the first line of the creed links us to, the deep Jewish sensibility about one God and the rival gods that have a plan to distract us from the one God. In the end, what I wish that we could do is have some small groups. What I hope that we have time to do is have some small groups to talk about modern idolatry. Since we don't have idols in the shape of golden calves or the sun or a frog god, what idolatry do we have? I'd like to hear about it from all of us. So I hope that there'll be time to do that. Be thinking about it, though, because once when I was in a training class at Hope Chapel, I had an early mentor and teacher named Gus Hunter, a uh, South African YWAM leader, who began to talk to us once about the dark mythology that he sees in German soil. So I don't know as much about German mythology as I do about Greek and Roman, but he said, because of that dark mythology, you can see how a Hitler would rise up from the soil of Germany. And we were interested in that, and someone asked him, what about the United States? What's our mythology? And he said, why, that's very clear to us who are non-Americans. And none of us Americans could guess what he was going to say. You've probably heard me say this before, but do you know what I'm going to say? What is Amer quintessential American mythology? Okay, so those are good things. He said Superman and the Lone Ranger. That is American mythology. A Superman who comes and saves the day. He's really a mild-mannered guy, but that's not the part that we relate to. We relate to his superpowers to save the day always. And a Lone Ranger who rides out of nowhere, we don't know who he's known by, saves the day and then rides off again. We don't know anything about his real life. All we know is this amazing power to save the day. That's American mythology, he told mm -hmm. us. And he said, American pastors, more than any others that he knows, are caught up in this, like this temptation to only put forth the strength of who they are and to, and to keep their weaknesses and their failures and their pains hidden because they think that's what their congregations want. That's what their congregations need is a superman, not a real man. So I say that by way of introduction. Think, be thinking while I'm speaking about American mythology, world mythology, and uh, idolatry in that sense because it would be interesting to me to talk about that. So, we believe in one God puts us in mind immediately of the heartbeat of the Jewish people. And that is seen best in what's called the Shema. What about the Shema now? Well, it, yes, it, it comes, but I guess the first slide, the, sorry, I had my slides were way too big for Thomas to know what to do with. So we've, we've cut them down. Do we have the one about the yeah. Lord alone is God? Yeah, that's Deuteronomy 4. It's what? Deuteronomy 4. Do you want yeah. Deuteronomy 4 or Deuteronomy 6? Yeah. Well, we can look at this one since we have it. Um, okay. This is what's known as the Shema, and the Shema, the word Shema means hear or listen. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And to the best of my understanding, the word one there is to be taken as only. Not one in the sense of there can't be a trinity within the one God. Like that can't be, so we don't want to open our hearts to that. Not that kind of one, but one in the sense of only. Um, and so a little bit earlier in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, there is a chapter where God reveals his, himself in history to this people called Israel. That's the one I'd like to read first. Um, I'll, I'll just read it. It's Deuteronomy 4.32. And now, of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, Ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror? all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, there is no other besides him. So that's the context that the first line of the creed puts us in. And what Mark Kinzer feels like is the link, the main link to the, the, the Jewish predecessor to the creed. Now, Another scripture in um, Deuteronomy surrounding the Shema is one, the chapter title is Idolatry Forbidden. So that's why I'm taking this talk in, in the direction of idolatry, modern idolatry. I think the Lord would like to give us both wisdom and discernment about that on the earth since it's part of God's great story and what he wants to do in the end. And it's part of what... Jesus will judge when he comes again to judge the living and the dead. So I'll read this one too, or just this part of it. I have the whole thing. The whole thing? Okay. I'll read it then. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you don't become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol. <coughs> An image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman or any animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air or any creature that moves along the ground or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon and the stars, all the heavenly array, don't be enticed to bow down to them and worship things the Lord your God has appointed to all the nations under heaven. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron-smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to the, be the people of his inheritance, as you now are. And then in Deuteronomy 6, we get what we call the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. I would like to put what Amy has brought us before up now, Thomas. Do you have that piece, what the Shema actually says yes. in Hebrew? 
This is a revelation that I cannot do justice to, Amy can, but I feel like it's important for us and will be in the long run. As Amy develop it, develops it, I hope we hear more. So the actual words go, Shema Israel, hear Israel. Yahweh Elohim Echad Yahweh, or sometimes you see Yehovah there in place of Yahweh. So literally, Yahweh, the name for God, Elohim, a plural form of God, Echad, a verb, is one, and then Yahweh, God. So what Amy has, has thought about is it comes across this way, and it's, and, and it's intimate in a way. So that links with Father, in a way, an invitation to know, or, or even a hope that's given us to know God intimately because he reveals his name. Yahweh God is one Yahweh. And that's different than saying God is one God. If, if Karen were God and Karen said, Karen is one God, and you shall worship one God. It's different than if Karen said, Karen is one God, Karen. Because she gives her name. And her name is, is an intimate way of knowing her. It's like, I thought, tried to think about it. It's like if God said to his people, you shall love me. That shows that God is almighty and that he has a plan and, and he's going to put it into motion. But it's different than saying something like, tell me that you love me. And God waits until people answer that. Tell me that you love me is different than you shall love me. In some ways, I think, okay, this is maybe my meager way, but in some ways, I think this is what Yahweh God is one Yahweh is communicating different than here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. There's a very intimate invitation to knowing the name and the character of God as he created and knowing his story from the beginning to the end. What corrupted his story? What still corrupts it? I like the prayer that we prayed at Bridge Prayer because it was about what corrupts us, remove it. What still corrupts it, and what is the church called to do to finish God's story so that the world is uncorrupted? So, Again, this brings me to the issue of idolatry. And the next slide, please. Okay, so yes. So reading well, a little bit. Can we go back to the title on your... I'm just going to go forward with okay. this First Corinthians thing here. Reading a little bit from a Messianic Jewish point of view about the creed, I come across an article that Mark Kinzer wrote. And he, as Thomas said, ties the creed to some verses in 1 Corinthians, which I had, I had never come across that before. I had never read a book on the creed, and so I wouldn't have known it. But I'm glad to hear that Thomas found it as well in, in one of his books. So it must be perhaps common theological knowledge. 
that the creed comes from these scriptures in 1 Corinthians. But the scriptures, but this verse is tied to uh, what Paul is trying to teach the Corinthians about food sacrifice to idols. So again, it's tied into idolatry and to the, the call of the Jewish people to know God and to separate idols from God. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And that's a discussion for another time on the Creed which is the role that Jesus plays with the Father, through whom and from whom all are things. But what Mark said, I just want to read. Paul's short confession is a Yeshua faith interpretation of the Shema. And the Nicene Creed is an expanded interpretation of Paul's confession. That's how a Messianic Jew would see it. Paul expands the Shema to include Yeshua, within a differentiated but singular deity. And as the context makes clear, Paul's expanded Messianic Shema is aimed, like its traditional Jewish model, at the rejection of pagan idolatry and polytheism. Does that make sense? So again, the creed is linked in the Messianic Jewish mind to the calling to know the true God as he is, and I would say intimately is part of it and part of what Amy is going to unpack for us, I think, and a rejection of everything that is not God but pretending to be. So I wanted to speak a little bit about Israel's struggle with idolatry. What's not present in this presentation would be a look at the church's struggle with idolatry. I didn't think about it in those terms, though we, and, I, and I, I can't name it in those terms, though we who were part of Wittenberg know that we are called to grieve and to repent for some sins that could be akin to idolatry at that time. I haven't seen it that way, so I don't feel, I don't feel any authority to talk about it that way, but with Israel, we have it written very clearly in Scripture, their struggle and, and, and the way they both lost and won the struggle with idolatry. So first, I just wanted to re refresh our minds with some of those things. And the first one example I had was with Solomon. You know this story probably, but this one is telling because Solomon prayed such a beautiful prayer at the beginning of his kingship where he said, I, how, how can I govern this great people? Would you give me the wisdom to govern your great people? And God said, because you haven't asked for riches and you haven't asked for a great kingdom, but you have asked for wisdom to govern my people, I will give it to you and I'll give you the rest of it too. You will have the most famous and greatest kingdom on earth. And he did. And so, and he had two times where God appeared to him in such a way. And yet, at the end of his life, he was drawn away to idolatry. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the, te the testable god of the Ammonites. 
and he built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of Is that? He, the Lord, became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. In the beginning, he was very much with God as he got older, and because of his how many wives? Do you remember the number? <laughs> This is mind-boggling in, in itself to me. 700 wives. And how many concubines? <laughs> to round out to an even 1,300. Concubines and 700 wives. And I can't explain what that means. I know that it has more to do with, it has more to do with the display of the blessing of a god. Because the greater your empire, the more you can take care of that many wives. So it doesn't all have to do with what we might think. It has to do with a display of power and the ability to care for that many women and their children in a society where women, women didn't have a different way to be cared for other than to be cared for about their husbands. So there's something here about that that I don't fully understand. But what is clear is that at the end of his life as he grew old, because he had many, many foreign wives, they were able to entice him to build I idols and, and, and altars in Israel where they burned incense, and he went with them to burn incense to other gods. And so this, this continues. This is in like 950. By 900, we have a very famous king, Ahab, who marries a, a princess who's not Jewish. She's of the Phoenician ethnic group, and she worships also gods who are not Israel's gods, Baal or Baal, however it's pronounced and Ashtoreth as well. And she brings 900 of them, of the priests of these gods to Israel, and there's a showdown with, which prophet? Elijah. 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 Stanley, would you, mind, would you go back to the, the verse about Solomon? Do you mind if I interject here just a bit? Please. Because, <laughs> because I am passionate about this. Um, so I... I I feel stupid because I didn't know this until a few years ago, but um, anytime you see the Lord's name written in all capital letters, it is, that's not what the Hebrew says. It is the personal name of God. It's Yahweh. Keep going back one, one more. And uh, we don't have time to go into this. I, I've taught on this before, but but let's read it again. Yahweh, it's not the Lord, it's Yahweh who became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from Yahweh, the God of Israel, to appear to him twice. I just I just feel that it's so important that, that it, it is it is a person who the revelation of God's name is a beautiful act of intimacy. And we've lost some of that intimacy for good reason. For good reason. But but the but I think to understand the emotions of God, he is not a tyrant king who gets mad if people uh, don't do the right things or follow the right rules. He is a God who has revealed himself. And, and, and so the, the, the emotions of this are very personal. Anyway, that's all I wanted to say. Can you, Sorry. Can you quickly explain, like, Yahweh versus Jehovah versus Adonai? Um, <laughs> you, need to, you need to listen to her second teaching from Turkey. If you yeah, listen right. to the teaching of Anscat, they go, Yahweh, well, I, I, Yahweh I is the revealed. Okay. Yeah. 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 Yahovah and Yahweh, uh, 
out of reverence, out of extreme reverence for the, for the holy name of God. The, the entire name is not written out in scripture. So we get the, the tetragrammaton, four letters. And so we have, we have those points. We don't really know exactly what vowels were in there. So Yehovah and Yahweh, they're, they're the same. They're the most personal name of God. Adonai is, is a different word. Adonai means Lord. Adonai um, can be used of a man as well as God. So Sarah calls Abraham Adonai. There are other places in the Bible where you can call a person Adonai. Um, I can, because I can't resist myself. <laughs> Does anybody want to guess the ratio of the time that Yahweh appears as opposed to Adonai in the Old Testament? First of all, raise your hand if you You think. told us once. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah I can't yeah, remember. It's like 1,700 to 400. It's, it's roughly that. 1,700. What? It's 6,700. Six, oh, sorry. 6,700 6, times. 6,700 times as opposed to roughly 400. And some of those are references to men and not God. So it's almost every verse you have memorized from the Old Testament that says the Lord really says Yahweh. So, yes, I think what y'all are trying to say is that instead of Pharaoh, it's Joe. Like, it's a personal name versus a title, like, I have to go exactly. to the object exactly. to and get a thing that I need from the king because I'm poor. Exactly. he has more power than I Exactly. The, the, the personal name of God is, it's like Kara. It's like, I mean, this is what is mean. It, 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 the New Testament flip side is the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is powerful, but it's a name. Right? It's a name that other people have. Yehovah's different. It, it, some scholars think that, that it is derived from Hayah, or um, it, it goes back to I am who I am. So it's not a name that anybody else has. Nobody else has this name, but it is a personal name. And it's not, it's not a, a positional name. It's a, it's, and this is, how, this, is how, this is how God reveals his intimacy to Moses, who has seen all of the miracles and seen everything, he says, I want to see your glory. And, and so okay. the Lord says, yes. And he says, hey, it's really, really, really important. And I know it's really important, so it's a good question. And um, I just was going to talk about a few more instances of, of idolatry in the Old Testament, but you will know them, so we don't need to spend any time on them. But do you know the story that happened in Ezra, chapter 10? You know, it happened when Ezra the priest sees the exiles and, and realizes that some of them have married foreign wives again. So it's kind of hearkening back to, to what Solomon did. Yeah. So you, it, can seem, it can seem quite dictatorial and despotic to say you cannot marry someone who's not Jewish. But, the, the, but the, what God saw would happen because the gods, the idol gods, were so rampant and they, they have a desire part of what I want to say. They have a desire to be worshipped and to draw worship away from God. It's very active today. They have that desire. Right. Okay, so that's what God was after, but so what happened with these Israelites in the day of Ezra was that many of them did not, most of them did not marry foreign women, but some did and they even had children with them. And when Ezra sees that, Ezra falls, falls to his knees and repents and he is able to convince them. And they respond, we've broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the people of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. 
Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. And so they came forward, and they gave their wives back to the cultures that they came from. And you can be assured that God took care of those women. But, but he also was protecting something which is essential to him in terms of there being a witness to all the Gentile peoples who God is and who isn't God, who is his name, Yahweh, and who is not. We can see it most clearly probably when we realize that in some of those, some of those Gentile nations, they sacrificed their children to the gods to appease them. And God says at some point in the Old Testament, far be it from me to do such a detestable thing. And so to keep that kind of confusion from entering, there was a people he called who would have to remain separate from that kind of behavior. And so we, we know that Israel struggled and, and lost many struggles and sometimes won one, which was why I put Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up for the kids to see. Those are times. So that Ezra is about in 450, Daniel and, and Shadrach, and those are about in 650 in Babylon, and they were, they were tempted at the stake of their lives to fall down in worship, an idol statue, or to pray to the name of, of, of Nebuchadnezzar, and they didn't do it. And, and so in, the, in that, those instances, the Jewish people won the battle against idolatry and at, at the stake of their lives, and they are great heroes of mine, very great heroes of mine. Because I feel like the stakes are getting higher for us, and if I can use this analogy, the fire in the furnace is being stoked, hotter. As I live, and in the last part of my life, in the next 30 years of my life, which are so essential for the children, the furnace will be stoked hotter and hotter regarding what is God and what is not God. By the time the Jewish people were dominated by the Greek and Roman world, they had largely come out of exile back into their land. They had largely thrown off their temptation to idolatry in a big way, so that they fought to go to the Roman officials and the Greek officials and said, let us have our religion. <laughs> we only worship one God. We don't worship all these other gods. That's who we are. Let us have it. They were able to broker that so that Judaism was allowed to be a monotheism in the midst of this poly polytheism that was rampant. And so that brings us to the point of Paul, of Jesus' day and Paul's day, and the idolatry in the world at the time that Jesus came. I wanted just to look at it in one scripture of Acts 17. How are we doing on time? Great. Okay. In Acts 17, and then we can zoom to the rest of it. Um, do we have Acts 17? We do not have Acts 17. Okay, then Sorry. if you have Acts 17, um, you can read along with me or, or I'll just read it. Um, Paul is in Athens. Athens was a main city of Greece. It was not the most main city. The most main city at that time was Corinth. And so Paul's teaching to the Corinthians is, is, is always interwoven with how to help them not have idolatry as part of their practice because they were a main city of it, and Athens was too. So verse 16 starts this way. 
Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So Paul, standing in the midst, I'm skipping a few verses, of the Oropagus said, when he was invited to speak by the Athenians who loved to hear philosophers speak, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Verse 22. Yeah, now 23. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own prophet poets, excuse me, have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. And this verse I bolded. The times of ignorance, these times of ignorance, God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So I'll read that part again. These times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And ancient historians tell us that in Athens at the time there were probably more than 30,000 individual gods that were being worshipped. And so there was definitely uh, a movement to worship. Part of it was to protect the city. If you didn't worship the gods correctly, then your city was in danger of being taken over by a rival city of, of some kind of catastrophe from the heavens. And there was a great deal of fear about it. And so fear motivated them as well in their worship of these gods. So they had a shrine to the unknown god to cover one that they possibly had not worshipped correctly. And so that would jeopardize them. So Paul saw this and saw how to speak to it. In the time of the Nicene Creed, then, the situation has not changed very much from this. The Roman gods were rampant, and this is what Constantine made a decision about. But Constantine, before he, he made that decision, and I don't know the story that well, um, there were priests in the Roman world called augurs, I believe is the pronunciation, and they they tried to foretell the future, especially concerning battles. So as the Roman Empire expanded and went into battle against another people, 
these augurs would read the entrails of animals and get a sense for whether they would win or lose the battle. They also read signs in the skies. They looked at the way lightning struck and got a sense of whether the battle would be won or lost. And so the story goes that Constantine saw in the heavens a cross. And that, and that was a sign to him that he would conquer under the banner of the cross, which belonged to Christians. He knew that. And I think he won that battle. And then he decided to give his empire to honoring the god of the cross. And the story goes that his mother was a believer. And I don't know much more about it than that. Um, but what happened then was the world is still full of idolatry to the tune of 30,000 in one city. So the people who are called to bring the true God, now the, as, as of the cross, the word is going to be carried into all the Gentile world with the message of this one God. And the idols then will diminish and back away. So is the hope. Um, I, I want to say just a little bit about idols in general, since we have so little sense of them, I think, in our modern world, and I did, did have a sense of it, and when I began to read the scripture very seriously and saw the idolatry, it's heartbreaking to me to see it. It's heartbreaking from the standpoint of God. I think it, it's heartbreaking to love God and to see how the people he called to himself could be enticed to idols when there's him. And, and so I think part of what Amy is bringing, part of what it is, I think, speaks to me very, very deeply, is that God gets what God wants from the earth. He, he gets a true understanding of who he is and an allegiance to it, even unto our death, like Daniel and like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, even before I had much sense of of, of, of a personal relationship with God, I remember being in Mass, maybe I was in the fifth grade. Maybe some of you have heard this story, I don't know, but a visiting priest came who had been behind the Iron Curtain, so he had been in communist, communist country where the true worship of God was suppressed in a, in, a, in a huge way, as we know. And he told the story of a small church and a group of people who came to morning Mass, and there was probably no more than ten of them, but soldiers came in, came in with a bayonet, and they took the crucifix down off the wall and threw it on the floor. And then they lined the 10 faithful, which were probably eight women in their 50s or 80s or 70s, because lots of times it's they who go to morning mass, lined them up behind the crucifix, and at bayonet point said, step on the crucifix, you can live. Refuse to step on the crucifix, you die right there. And the priest said, what would you do? And I remember sitting in the pew at age 12 thinking, I guess I would die. I guess I would be shot. I wonder what it feels like to be shot. Or would they stab with a baby? <laughs> but I knew, I knew that I knew I cannot step on the face of Jesus. I can't do that. So, in a way, much later at Hope Chapel, in a way this was a reckoning that I hope, I hope, I hope, marked me. Much later at Hope Chapel there was a missions conference and a, and a big missions leader came 
And at the end of the missions conference, people were tired and most of them had gone home. There weren't that many of us left, maybe 25 out of 150. And he said, some of you, and I'm assured of this, and he was talking about a call to the Muslim world as missionaries, some of you, and I'm assured of this, he said in a prophetic way, are not going to die a natural death. You are going to be martyred in this attempt to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, if you think that might be you, stand up. And the person beside me, who I won't name, and I just inexplicably stood up. And then he prayed a prayer over us, and we sat back down, and that was kind of the end of it. But you know some of you in this room have gone to a gathering that John Boyle called, and at that gathering he said, we're here to celebrate your funeral because, is that right? Because you're not going to have one. You're not going to have a natural one. Now, I'm not saying that to be spooky. I'm actually saying that because I think it is a great strength and grace that God wants to give to make a very early decision about that. And I didn't say that explicitly to the children, but I think they, I hope they make a very early decision. I will die then. I will then die. That's just how it will be. I will not. I will not worship a false god. I will not take a mark that would cause me to do that. I will just then die. And it's just a decision, and it's just made in your heart, and I really think things are cooking up into that direction. I don't mean in my lifetime. I mean, I think things are cooking up. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. All right, so um, when Paul... When Paul was speaking to the Corinthians and, and helping them understand idolatry, do we have 1 Corinthians Three then? minutes until... Small groups? Okay. I don't, I don't have any more slides. I don't know okay. why. Well, I, I, I brought this book to, to, to show the children, and this really, in, in a way, is the last point that I want to make. Um, see how it, how it fits to you all. Um, in 1 Corinthians 10, again, Paul is, is speaking to the Corinthian people, helping them understand how do they live in a world full of idolatry. So he says, this is called idol feasts and the Lord's Supper. Many of them went to feasts where there was food that had been sacrificed to idols. And Paul already said, we know that an idol is nothing and the gods attached to those idols are not God like our God. But he's explaining further. Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? So... Here's the book I brought, actually, to, to show the children, but I didn't really go in that direction. And there's something about this. Okay, so there's something that challenges my educated, sophisticated mind about demons, about just about demons being behind things. Demons are personalities that are behind things in our world. That does challenge my, my educated, sophisticated mind. But it's why I so much like this book. 
And I like that the child, that a child drew the pictures, and John, John uses it to teach the children because they get it quickly. It's called defeating dark angels. They get very quickly that there are forces at work, and some of them are dark forces. So what Paul is saying here is that there are demons attached to some of these things. So it's not hard for me to understand that the great cosmic battle is a God who is good and, and, and wants us to know him, that he might be good to the whole earth and all of creation, and there are rival gods that want to detract from that completely, as completely as possible, and they want themselves to be worshipped. So when we look at God's point of judging the world, one of the points we have to remember is this scripture in Psalm 16. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. Where there are demons behind things, and those demons want to be worshipped, there are sorrows for all who are drawn into the power. And God, as we know, loves the people that he created. So what I thought would be good, a good exercise of our powers of discernment, and ask the Lord to help us in terms of giving us gifts of wisdom, but to do in small groups, would be just to talk about what is idolatry that we see in the world, in the United States I'm particularly interested in, and perhaps in our own lives. And by that, I want to say this. Um, in, in dealing myself with what I would call generational curses, from the time I was a believer, I had to jump into inner healing very quickly to even be able to stand as a believer. So all the sin patterns that I had and all of those that may have come to me from generations, I had to deal with very fast and very honestly. Um, but it's just recently that I've understood, again, I'll say that John Boyle would talk to me about dealing with Italian curses, he would say, because I have an Italian father. You've got to deal with your Italian curses. And I have an Irish mother. You've got to deal with your Irish curses. And I'm like, John, I don't know what you mean. I've just, I've just done so much inner healing. I don't, what are you talking about? <laughs> what Italian curses? We didn't have mafia. What do you mean? And so I just couldn't get it until just recently I got it. Actually in a new way, and it has done me a world of good. To look at some of my besetting sins and to canvas my brothers and sisters and say, aha, it's with them too. This comes from something beyond us to a generation and a generation and a generation before us. And because it's so virulent, I wonder if there's an idolatry linked to it that's never been repented of. There was someone in the generation four times ago who actually gave his or her heart to this thing in a real way. And there's a power that comes all the way up to me. And I took these things to a prayer group, and th there was a visible difference in how they prayed and how they were broken over me. I just say that to say, I mean, I just think there's more freedom for us, and sometimes it might be helpful to look at the way it started as a demon personality wanting to be worshipped. Mm -hmm. that, that kind of thing, setting itself up against the true God. Let's break them into groups. Okay, I, I don't know quite how to I do love, it. Let's first of all thank Sandy for what she needs to do.
If you were born in January, February, or March, stand up. <laughs>